film is a sort of dreamscape. You get this kind of groundless passion. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah. Hello, good afternoon. Many thanks for being here. I'm Rosalie Dobell. I'm the curator at the Institute of Contemporary Arts. And on behalf of all of us at the ICA, I'm really, really excited to welcome you to this important in conversation with Chelsea Manning and James Bridal. We, as an organisation, are increasingly aware of the importance of free spaces for direct and unmediated discussion. And so we're really hugely thankful to Chelsea and James for travelling to join us here, to be present together in this room. And also significantly, we're really grateful to you, our members and audience, for joining us here to share this conversation. So, to introduce today's guests... We have technologist Chelsea Manning, who is a vocal advocate for government transparency and LGBTQ plus rights. Chelsea is now traveling internationally, speaking and writing on the social, technological and economic ramifications of AI and on the practical applications of machine learning. Chelsea is joined by James Bridal, who is an artist and writer working across technologies and disciplines. His writing on literature, culture and networks have appeared in numerous publications such as Wired, The Guardian and The Observer. His new book, New Dark Age, about technology, knowledge, and the end of the future, has this year also been published by Verso. Both speakers show deep concern for our future, and particularly the difficulties we face as a society in trying to affect major change in an era when new technologies atomize our cultures and communities rather than draw them together. Some thanks for today's event. Go to Vivian Westwood and to Freeze for their support and to Liz, the Evil Twin Booking Agency, for her coordination, to Jen Robinson and to Kingsley Napley and to a major donor who wishes to remain anonymous. I know that all of us here share a very deep respect for uh, Chelsea's astounding bravery and for James's important writing and artistic intervention, so I'd now please ask you to put your hands together and join me in a very warm and thankful welcome to Chelsea and James. Thank you all very much uh, for that warm welcome and for all for being here. Thanks to the ICA and the World Institution for having us here. Uh, I'm really uh, excited about uh, what we can talk about over the next hour. Um, but really, we're here to, um, to talk to Chelsea and to hear a little bit um, primarily about what she's up to now uh, with a little bit of, of, of background to that as well, which we're all fascinated in. So um, I would like to start really by asking you, um, you know, it's been uh, over a year now and you came out of prison to a world that you described as being very different. What did you want to see in the world? What made you become active in the way that you have done in the last year? Right. So, um, when I first got out of prison, because, you know, when you're in prison for a long time, uh, which I was, and I had a 35-year sentence, and I had no idea, like, where in that range I would ever get out, um, it seems so far and it seems so distant, so you don't really have a plan or like a vision uh, of what that looks like. Um, so I had four months to like maybe grapple with this, but a lot of the list time was spent thinking about, you know, retiring, heading home, you know, a lot of um, this like notion of like settling down, like riding off into the sunset. 
Um, but the reality is, is that whenever I did get out, because um, I, I kind of have that like idea in my head, uh, many of the things that drove me into doing the, you know, the whether it's the leaks or any of the work that I've done in the last decade, um, prison, you know, prison advocacy or anything like that, it's been mostly. It's been mostly driven by this idea, like that. I, I see the world in this way because of what I've what I've been able to experience, being both you know being homeless, being in prison, being in the military, and that drove me, like having these having this value set about like what the world is and like the sense of like the police state, the intelligence apparatus, and the military. Uh, and the rise of authoritarianism, like, really drove me to to do this, and it, it's it's really accelerated. It's like somebody like hit the gas pedal uh, while I was away and just like really rammed it up, and uh, it's inescapable. Um, there, you know, like I'm constantly bombarded by reminders of how different and how drastically, you know. Um, different the world really is. And this whole notion of like, oh, well, you get out of prison and you're free now turned out to be a bit of a, you know, it, it turned out to be a bit of a downer in that sense because what happened was we we really built this large, big prison, which is the United States, in the meantime. You know, it was it was already happening. It's just it really intensified, you know. To the, you know, you think about the surveillance systems like cameras or the police presence, you know, and you think about the... Uh, the fact we have like walls uh, around our, our country now, uh, and that's very much the the same thing that's inside of a prison. And so I just see a lot of these core. I see a lot of like similarities between the world out out here and the world that was in there. Because you worked on systems that are related to that uh, yes. prior, uh, both prior to your military service and during your military service. What right. were those systems that you were working on? So I mostly worked with. Uh, statistical analysis. So before I was in the military, I, I worked as an intern at a, at, at a couple. Uh, I worked as an intern at a company as a program at another company. Um, and uh, basically, what I did was marketing and um, promotion. And you know, I really developed the, like these tools are developed uh, in a marketing context to predict who's going to buy what when. And like, so you take all this uh, data, like locations and interests and mix it all together to try to build predictions or build a profile or a model. Um, we were using the same thing in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I can't really get into the specifics of it. Uh, obviously, there's national security and all that stuff, but, um, the, but, the, general, but the general basis, the mathematical basis of these tools um, in being able to make predictions is, is largely the same. And so... Uh, now the two, the techniques have gotten they've changed obviously in the last ten years. Beforehand, I was Bayesian statistics, which I mean I won't get into that, but um, you know it was basically very it was a very conventional approach. But now there's a, a neural network approach, which make which speeds things speeds up the learn and it's more of a learning process than it was. It was more like a, a predictive analysis, like statistical analysis process before that was learning, but now it's really starting to like like. The approach to artificial intelligence is much, much more rigid than it was now. But the intent of these systems the, to predict, you know, who might be a, a target for, uh, you know, for surveillance or to be like uh, 
killed in a drone strike or to have their credit application denied or to, to be you know, a customer or to have advertising. A lot of these intentions are, are the same. It's just that the, the systems are much bigger, the data sets are much larger, and frankly, it's a lot scarier in how accurate it is. I mean, I think, I think I, I've seen uh, as few as five data points be able to, you know, as you know, to predict exactly what kind of person you are based upon like seemingly random data points, like um, like a credit card, like credit card purchases. You know, there's an astounding amount of information that you can glean off of a person based upon their credit card uh, purchases if you have a large enough database and you have these, you know, it's, and you're running these through machine learning algorithms. And what we've seen, what you're describing, is the way in which those systems over the last decade or more have moved from being stuff happening perhaps in marketing companies, have been kind of beefed up by the military, and are now kind of returning back into the civilian zone. Right. And it was actually, the, it was concurrent development. Um, so what was happening in social, network, in social networks was happening in the Department of Defense simultaneously. Um, I mean, at least I, that's what I saw. Um, but the the intent is very different. But and also the the social the social impact of uh, social networks is much deeper. It's not as consequential in terms of like you know surveillance or uh, uh, getting targeted for you know uh, police surveillance or warrants or anything like that. It's it's much more about the kinds of life consequences, like what kind of what kind of articles you get, what kind of uh, information that you see, what kind of advertising data, uh, what, what kind of advertising gets put in, into you uh, or like shown to you. Um, and so like, like the, intent, the intent is very different and the effects are very different, but the tool, the underlying tool is the same. And do you think that's sort of widely understood as someone who has a background kind of technically in this stuff and obviously knows, has been involved in movements around it and talks to a lot of people who work on it? How well do you think people understand the, the, the technologies behind it and the social effects of them? Uh, I think, I mean, people in technology obviously really have a much more intuitive understanding of, of the, the connections because it's, it's the same tools. Uh, but uh, I think that the general population um, is learning I think I think uh, it's not it's certainly not an awareness problem. I, I think that the general pub public um, seems I'm pretty confident to say that we're, you know we're very aware of the kinds of issues that are brought up with AI and machine learning and with the kinds of uh, policies that come along with that and the kinds of companies that you know take advantage of that. So I think it's not an awareness problem. I think it's a it's a problem of what to do about it. Certainly. So again, in, in the last year or so, you've been engaging with a lot of activist groups along kind of quite a, a, a range of different subjects and movements in the US. Right. Uh, who, who've, who've you encountered? Who you've been talking to? Which to you have felt like the kind of most interesting and also the most effective kind of movements at the moment? Uh, I've been all over the country in the US. Um, uh, I've been to Berkeley. I've been to Oakland. I've been to Brooklyn. I've been to Durham, South or Durham, North Carolina. I've been to Baltimore, which I ran for Senate in Baltimore uh, or in, in the state of Maryland. Um, Brooklyn. Like I, I'm, I keep encountering small communities and a lot of universities. I visit a lot of universities as well, and so it's sort of like student activists, small communities that have more organic. Uh, organizing, grassroots organizing. Um, that seems to be what I've been, like the folks that I've been working with the most. And it's also like 
I think, the most promising because it's funny because most small community organizing groups have already, they already know what the problem is. They've already identified it. They also know what they think the solution is and how to come about that solution. So it's not an understanding problem. It's really... It's it's really astounding just how much like grassroots organizers are ignored by the general like sense that you know like oh well the bigger government like the state government will be able to understand this the federal government will be able to to come up with solutions but really the communities really know what the issues are in in, in, in from a local perspective and I you know I think it's I think it's interesting to see how most communities especially in the U S whenever they're organizing how distant they are from the sort of polit- the broader political conversation that might be going on on television or on social media. Well, do you think those kind of um, particular approaches or tactics that these movements are developing or starting to understand? Because I mean, sometimes it can feel a lot like we're stuck in, despite the, um, the very contemporary nature of the, the, the threats, the raid against these kind of movements, whether those are technological, whether those are forms of kind of large-scale systemic oppression that we're only really beginning to kind of get our heads around. Right. We still seem to resort quite often to the kind of very familiar protest tactics or kind of opposition tactics. Right. So, and you, you know, a significant part of that is, you know, the more traditional, like, showing up to a protest or um, campaigning in, elect, in a local election or... Um, uh, especially because uh, uh, in local elections in the U.S., I mean, like, there's a lot of, like, smaller referenda or propositions, depending on where you are, what, you know, ballot initiatives. Um, and so a lot of these, like, a lot of these policies can be, you know, there's more traditional means in which the, the, the these things get d- discussed and brought up. But uh, increasingly, uh, there's, a, there's a need that I feel for uh, community organizers uh, and, you know, sometimes in coalition with other organizers to, like, really um, explore more options uh, and because you're not just limited to you know voting or to you know signing a petition or to uh, you know like doing a doing a protest with chants and signs and having a permit um, we're seeing a lot more of these more uh, risky and aggressive um, and you know, like confrontational approaches to activism that I think that I think in this time you know are quite valid and necessary. But it's also creating because it, it, it shifts the debate. It moves it moves the needle. You know, whereas I think that whenever you're trying to work with inside of a of an existing system, the needle doesn't move very much because the the structure you know kind of keeps you from doing that. So I think that um, you know, I, I mean, just a few months. Just I mean. It's been what a month and a half since I, I was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I watched this these student like students and um, students and like local organizers uh, in the Chapel Hill area like pull down a Confederate statue like after 50 years of trying to get this thing down you know get this thing down through numerous processes and numerous movements uh, since 1968 they just failed to do it and. You know, after frustration and the, the the symbolism of everything that's going on in America with race and you know police and police violence and uh, and the protection of uh, of of really extreme right wing views in America, um, it it came to a head and they finally just pulled it down. And it was one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen in my life. 
And, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of come, still coming off of the heels of witnessing that, you know, even though it was just a, a very small local moment. I mean, it did get national attention, uh, and I'm sure it got some international attention, but uh, I, I, for me, it was just the intense, the intensity and the the, 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 the way in which, you know, that sort of organically happened, like nobody told them to do that. They just did. They just finally did a thing that changed the conversation. So it moved the needle of the conversation uh, very far along. And so there's numerous examples of this. It's probably a more extreme example, to say the least. And what do you feel is your role in participating in that? Or do you see them as mirroring some of your own experience of having taken that step of action? Uh, I absolutely, I mean, I always stand in solidarity with these folks. Um, I do feel a strong affinity. I feel very, you know, what I've done in my life has, is very similar. I mean, I, you know, I saw something that needed, that I felt needed to happen based upon the values that I had and the information that I had in a particular moment in my life. And... And I did something about it, but the, the existing system wouldn't allow for change in that way. So I think that I see a lot of correlation. I mean, certainly the, the scale of, the, of this is, is very different. But for me, it means a lot to me to see folks doing this stuff. And it's very, I mean, honestly, it's kind of validating for me to just be with these pe- people and to, to, to be there to like, you know, when they, you know when, if they get arrested, like to be there outside the jail and to you know, like put, put some money down for bail or to, you know, say a nice thing on Twitter, you know, to say a good thing or raise awareness about it on Twitter or, you know, it, it just, it, it, it's where my passion is, you know, and I feel like their passion and my passion line up perfectly. But you never expected, I mean, certainly not going into the military, that you would be in a position to be able to take the kind of action that you did. Right. I'm, but- I'm, I just, I was just as, doing statistics. That's the way I saw it. Um, so it was very... So in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, the systems that we were using needed... When you're an analyst, you're, it's a very abstract job. At least the one that I had was very... When I was doing it stateside, because I did this job for a year before I deployed to Iraq, it's a very abstract job. And in that job, it's it's very math based. It's very uh, it's it's very much uh, about tweaking data set, uh, a, a very complex, very rich, you know, different types of data sets, getting them to work together with each other and make predictions and create mo- create a predictive model, and uh, that's that's very separated. Like you understand that you you have to understand the data and you know. Like the, the the volume of data is, is just tremendous. At least you know, even at the time, you know, it was. It, I mean, it's nothing compared to what it, what it is today. But um, you know, it's the, the 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 it's very separated from reality. When when you, it was when I, it was once I understood from being in this environment and realizing that what I'm working with aren't just database records. They're not just you know. They're not just reports. They're there, there are human beings attached to this, and there's like people living lives, and um, you know the, the the worst, you know the very like worst parts of people, the the, the flaws and the 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 vulnerabilities, and the best parts of people, the the hopes and dreams and and desires and human connections that we have, like are all tied up in this, and. 
that's, when you tie it all together like that, you just, you can't do that anymore. And I think, you know, that, that, that once that happened, and it doesn't just happen overnight, I think that was a, a primary motivator. But, you know, I, I didn't, so, so obviously I, I, I reached out and I tried to do something about it. So I went to the Washington Post and the New York Times, and eventually I went to, you know, I, I went and I uploaded, I uploaded it to WayLeaks, and, like, it became a thing. But at the same time, you know, I, you know, I got so I and I, it's really hard for me because I I I I did this and then I ended up going to prison immediately and not really having the time to process it all. So it was just like then it was just survival. So solitary confinement, survival, and I'm I'm just so for me there's a huge correlation really between the way in which uh, we fail to see a lot of the kind of societal structures around us, whether those are kind of structures of surveillance, whether there's these kind of data-driven structures that seem so kind of abstract, and the kind of systems within society itself, political systems, systems of, a, of, of, of oppression, systems of power, right. that are mo- hard for most people to read. And well, they're so, supposed to be. Absolutely, right? So what, what's, what's the moment when they become less abstract? Or how do you... Well, when it happens to you, or when you see it happen, when you see the effects of it happen in front of you, I think that's... I mean, it's very easy, you know... And I, you know, I, I, I lived before I was homeless. I didn't really understand the issues of homelessness. Before I went into the military, I didn't really understand the problems of, you know, the military-industrial complex and foreign, you know, like how foreign affairs works and how the defense industry works. And it wasn't until I went to prison that I understood just how the criminal justice system works, how you know prisons work, how the education system and the 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 connects the American education system uh, correlates to the to the you know to the prison system and how the prison system connects to the military like in in the military industrial complex in this really like complex way you know post 9/11 and you don't really there there are abstractions that are distant because they're not in your life and so it's very hard to see the bigger picture because you're not supposed to see the bigger picture it's supposed to be large, it's supposed to be vast, it's supposed to be complicated, and, you know, you just want to, like, live in your small bubble, but once, but once something is penetrated into and popped that bubble, you can't return. Do you think that there's, um, is it possible for people who don't have that direct experience of it happening to them, like, what's the role uh, for kind of supporting uh, either people in particular positions within the military who may have something to say, or people in wider society who are oppressed, what's the, the role for, for those of us who are not in the position to blow a whistle or to um, kind of act directly in that way? I, I guess... I mean, I, listen. I mean, like, whenever somebody tells you that they have an experience, a de- deep personal experience that only they have, listen to them, because you just don't know. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what a person of color in America goes through, so I listen to what they have to say. Um, I don't know what an immigrant in you know, in today's society has to go through. So I listen to them. I'm taking them at their word because they have an experience that I don't have. I didn't understand... Honestly, I didn't really understand this until, like, you know, coming out 
and being trans, like I understand now that that I have experiences that you know a lot of people don't have, and like I just all I expect and all I hope for is for folks to listen to what I have to say about that, and you know that's where the understanding was going to begin is to just start and not be like well, I think so-and-so should be doing this because you don't know what their experience is. You don't know what their life is like. You don't know what they have to deal with. It's very, you, you just have to listen and trust, you know, folks. And you've spoken a lot about the necessity of uh, making some of this stuff more visible and accessible to people uh, so that they can understand. Uh, you um, said we well, it is accessible. It's all, it's all around us. It is visible. I don't think that that, again, it's not, it's not that we don't see it and we don't know about it. Now, like that, that might have been an issue before, but now it's not. I think that now the issue is what we do about that. Like we've, we've, we know that you know, we know about you know the the vast you know and very complex problems that come with the military. We know about the vast surveillance programs that we have. We know about you know uh, what social media you know platforms and and advertising companies are doing with their data. We know about you know all this all, all this like large-scale, vast, very complex and, and data-driven manipulation. And, you know, we know about it. This isn't a knowledge problem. It's a, an action problem. So how do you see uh, the effects of some of the, the kind of... Um, these other, uh, other releases? So, like, if, if the answer is not simply to kind of release and, and make accessible more information... Um, it, it's a part of it, but it's not... You know, like that's not it, and I like you have to you know, like like everyone else like has a responsibility, a role in this too, and because we, we all have political agency, we all have the ability to do something, and it's not until we recognize that and really start to assert our political agency in these things as individuals, often, you know, that anything will really be done about. It. I think there's an, I think there's an expectation by a lot of folks that somebody's going to come and fix it when nobody's going to like fix this stuff it's not going to happen on its own you just you know uh, in the US like congress isn't going to fix the problems with a lo- you know with um, with social media and social networks you know none of these things are going to be addressed in the way that i think people expect or are like, I think it's just, it's somebody else's problem. It's a very big, you know, it's sort of a, the, men, the mentality, the, the mind, you know, the, the thought that's going in a lot of folks' head. And it's just, that's not how the world works. Like, we have to solve it. And it's not going to, because, like, it's not going to, like, we can't expect a broken system to fix itself. You have to provoke it to change. You have to make it happen. Another structural ways we can engage with that as well. So, particularly speaking as as a technologist, someone who's involved in technology, what is the role of actually creating new structures or infrastructures around this stuff to either facilitate different kinds of protests? As I said, to not simply repeat the kind of um, um, uh, old protest tactics of the past, or to permit new kind of dialogues to to happen. Um. What I'm thinking of are the fact that you know the, we often feel like a lot of the tools that are in use are purely in, ha- in the hands of the people who work in advertising or the people who work in the right. military. Is there a role for those technologies for all of us to kind of use and engage with as well? Yeah, I think, I think the problem is a cent- it's a centralization problem where a lot of these tools are very centralized. You know, uh, 
their household names all over the world now. Facebook, Google, Twitter. Um, that's, I think that's, that's a core part of the problem. It's, we need to decentralize that and make it a lot more level of a playing field for folks. Um, you know, because internet service providers and um, and data, you know, like uh, data content create generators, um, you know, like like news outlets and things, they have a disproportionate amount of say and influence on these systems. And so it's like it's about decentralizing that, reducing the role that they play, and increasing the role that we play. So I think that. That there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer for that. And I think that, again, it comes back to why I keep going to local communities because time and time again, I keep seeing that, that we can start doing this, but it's going to happen locally. It's not going to happen on, you know, it's not going to happen on a big scale until it starts to happen on a small scale. Do you see a relationship? One of the things that I... I think about, about with regards to technology and this kind of coming to understand the world all the time is the way it performs this incredible dual role. In the one way, technology allows for this kind of like quite intense surveillance and, and um, kind of control culture to emerge. At the other hand, it allows for this kind of incredible range of representations to emerge. Like I don't think we would have uh, the... Um, uh, the, the feminist cultures and the trans cultures that we have in the present moment, kind of without the growth of these these technologies as well. Um, has that been a part of, of how you've come to, um, to, to to your own kind of forms of representation and being able to speak well, through these networks? On that, I just want to say, I think that there's a misunderstanding that's happening here. You know, there, there's especially when it comes to, in regards to like some folks' identity, like me as a trans person, as a trans woman. I, sure, we're a lot more visible. We're a lot more out there. That's not the, you know, visibility is not the same thing as equality. Just because you now are being seen doesn't mean that you're not in a state in which you're, you're, you're not having to deal with problems disproportionately in comparison to other folks that, who have different privileges in society. And so, you know, that's a systemic thing. That's not going to be solved by, a, by an AI system. That's not going to be solved by a tool that comes out. That, that is a systemic problem that can only be addressed when we challenge the assumptions, the, the core assumptions about the way we structure our entire society. Because it's not about tweaking a little bit here or there. It's about really questioning the fundamental assumptions that we make about how we run our society. Um, I'm in a, the context of the United States. Um, you know, like the, I think there's an assumption that the, there needs to be a president. What, you know, at one time there wasn't, and so now there is, and it's been assumed that you need to have a single office that has this a huge amount of power. But you know, is that really true? And the answer is, if you really start to ask questions about the fundamental systems that we have, do we need a prison system? Like these sort of fundamental, deeper questions, I think, are where we're going to see, like real change maybe being possible. But, you know, I think that expecting a, a system, like a, a computer system or, uh, or a new tool that comes out to solve that is, I think, um, going to be disappointing. I'm not asking necessarily if there's like a magic tool that's going to kind of solve this. It just feels like we're sort of, 
But we give up a huge amount of agency to these systems that we don't really think too much about, whether they're kind of uh, opaque political systems or whether they're um, uh, these kind of vast technological systems. At the same time, we're like society itself is becoming more kind of obviously diverse, visibly, perhaps not actually politically and equally in all these kind of ways. Right. But there is a there's an there's a definite increase in 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 that in that visibility. And I guess I'm just trying to trying to understand to what extent. Those, the way in which by looking at a kind of complex technological system, one can develop this kind of um, complex understanding of, of complex systems, whether um, the diversity of society kind of performs that role as well. So what essentially I'm talking about, I guess, is, is the value of intersectionality when you're talking about the LGBTQ plus politics in the US, aligning with racial justice movements, aligning with feminist issues, like what it means to be able to go from one protest to another in the US and see those things intersecting okay. and how they connect. Yeah, well, the, I mean, they are absolutely connected because as, as you see, um, a, lot of the, a lot of different groups are impacted by problems that are created by the same, by the same people, just in different ways. Um, Could you perhaps speak to one well, of those the, kind of examples? You know, there's like if folks in you know in who are dealing with immigration uh, in the U.S. have a documentation problem. Trans people also have a documentation problem in a, in a slightly different way because sometimes our gender you know markers are policed on us, and you know it's sort of the same way. It's this like diaspora of different people who are affected in different ways by the same system. So we can engage with each other and have solidarity with each other, even though we're not affected in the same way. We can understand that. We can, be, we can work together because we can see that and feel that and recognize that. So, you know, going to the intersectionality aspect, I, I think that um, that goes towards what you're trying to say. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the other form of direct action which you've alluded to, which you took earlier this year, was to, to run for the Senate, um, which was kind of a, a larger... It's a little more traditional of a... Yeah, absolutely. So why that? Why that? Um, well, I think that there's a... I think there's a utility... I mean, there's, the American political system is not just about... Uh, running for political office. There's also the media aspect. And the, the simple fact of the matter is that if you run for political office in America, you're given a platform. You know, uh, people want to interview you. Um, you're also given, you're also given uh, an, an argument. You, you give, you're given a space to make a debate. And a lot of the ideas that I've been talk that I was talking about in my Senate campaign were ideas that I never just that I just never saw anywhere else. You know, um, I was talking about abolishing ICE. I was talking about uh, you know defunding police uh, police departments. Uh, I was talking about um, you know universal basic income. Like a lot of these more you know out of out, you know out of the mainstream ideas because they're out of the mainstream because they've never been brought to the table before. So I wanted to bring some of those to the table and, and increase the amount of options in the debate. Um, and I thought, you know, there was some utility in that, to say the least. Um, but, you know, so, I'm, you know, so I was really using a traditional method to, to do something not traditional. And in that process, did you meet a lot of other people who seem to have this kind of agency that we're all trying to kind of work towards, whether they were uh, actually people who are kind of like well-known in this or whether they were kind of politically operative? What was their view of how they were shifting um, 
shifting these issues or bringing these issues. Well, who exactly? Whether uh, other politicians, other politicians. Oh, okay. So what I'm interested in is like no. these different roles within. Um, that came later. Uh, interestingly enough, it, like there is an increase in more diverse ideas in the political mainstream in America right now. Um, but that that wasn't whenever I was going through it earlier this year. Um, this wasn't the case. Um, this is this is starting to change, but it's 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 also not a drastic change. Like I was saying, some really drastically different things um, than folks were saying. But I, I, you know, I, I definitely didn't encounter anyone who uh, would, would would talk to me in that way for a while. Sure. Uh, my, my question was always because I keep coming back to this thing of saying like, you know, who has who has agency? Who has the power to act? We and, do. Um. Yes. <laughs> um, but people it's, understand. That's not an abstraction. That's a reality. It's not. It's not abstraction. But but why do you think most people don't feel that they do? Because uh, pro- actually, this is the thing that comes up we've against. We've been spoon-fed the, this narrative our whole lives. I mean, I, I mean, I certainly have. I mean, I'm not saying everybody's gone through this, but you know, I. You know, it, it feels like the, the government is this thing that happens on TV, um, that, you know, all these debates are something that happens far, far away, that wars happen way over there. Um, it's this feeling, this sense of like, oh, this is all outside. Um, obviously, that's changed in a lot of ways more recently because um, now I feel like everything in the world is impacting me every day, <laughs> um, especially if I'm on my phone too long. Um, but... You know, what, what, what do you think? What do you think that kind of uh, vastness of social media, that constant accessibility of this information, is doing to people? Because to me, it's very connected to what you say is this this visibility of everything, right? This belief that visibility will sort of magically improve stuff, and yet we're all constantly looking at all the visibility of everything, and yet right. it doesn't actually be shifting us in a, a particularly useful direction. Well, again, it's it's who's behind the tools. It's uh, there's there is still a, a, there is still somebody behind the curtain of the Wizard of Oz of you know the social media. Uh, tools, and that is the you know that that is the algorithms that are pro- that are showing you the things that you're seeing. Because it's not like you get to select a list. You you kind of get you kind of get this timeline, and you get this feed, and like that's that's weighted based upon a lot of different factors. And it's interesting that there's actually feedback loops that happen, especially with you know social media. Very similar to the feedback loops that you see, like in policing or in uh, combat operations, where you have a significant amount. You've spent spent a lot of resources, say, policing or or putting troops into a particular neighborhood, so you get more reporting. There's more activities happening there because you're getting more reporting. Well, the machine machine learning algorithms will learn that and they'll take that and they'll be like, okay, in the future there's probably going to be more, and so it predicts that. So you end up with this hot spot where you, you end up with a hot spot that just ends up getting hotter and hotter and hotter because you're not getting the you're not collecting the data as um, as uh, as evenly. Um, this happens on social media as well, where somebody will tweet something and it it gener- it's, it makes some people upset that this happened. So it generates a lot of content, you know, because a lot of people are mad about this. But the algorithm picks up on that. And so it, it, it encourages people to become more upset and more angry about it, which makes it a debate, which creates a huge amount of content. And as, it, as you develop more content in this particular area, the algorithm picks up on that and it f- shows you more of it. 
you know? So it becomes this feedback loop. So it's the same hot-spotting effect that's happening in predictive policing and in military operations. It's happening in, on Twitter and on Facebook. And the connection, though, is as well to the things we talked about before, this return of kind of military technologies, not just to policing, but to everyday life. That right. Something like uh, Cambridge Analytica, uh, which was essentially a lot of military, former military psychological operations people coming back and, and working on it's election technologies. It's a very incestuous industry. It's a very incestuous industry. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a connection <laughs> between those. But the, the industry college is interesting because you describe these as being like the algorithms behind these things. So. Well, I mean, you know, the... the, the, the there are people developing are people. it, but obviously, the, often, oftentimes, the decision makers or the policy makers don't get it. They don't understand it at all. They just want the results. Um, and so I think that there's, this, there's definitely a differentiation between the people who develop the algorithms, the people who interpret the results of the algorithms, and the algorithms themselves. Because, um, I, I mean, I think of algorithms as almost being a sort of primitive living entity at this point. You know, it definitely feels that way. Every time I work with a machine learning algorithm, I'm, I, I get this chilly feeling sometimes with the outputs, to say the least. Yeah, we seem to have trouble kind of really <laughs> describing them in terms that we can... It's, it's an inorganic life form, is how I like to yeah, describe we're it. we're heading that way. Um, but, I mean... Just before, I'd love to talk some more about that, but just for that, just for the, this question of who's behind the algorithms, and we have seen the hints of a kind of change in that. We saw the people who work at Google, for example, uh, refuse to work on kind of military technologies um, uh, Microsoft, uh, for Google itself. Microsoft had a very similar thing happen with, uh, with immigration, with the ICE, with connections to ICE and, uh, um, you know, uh, contracts with uh, uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement in the U.S., and so have you, had, have you spoken to people who kind of work within those organizations? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, many of them are my friends. So um, it's, uh, uh, I know that Cade Crawford does a lot of good work. Um, the she, AI Now Foundation. Yes, the AI yeah. Now Foundation is, uh, is, is, I think, a very good place to, to look at as sort of a model for, you know, where we can start to focus our understanding and research and development and, 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 um, and understanding what the, ethical consequences of these systems are. But, you know, it's not the end-all, be-all. In fact, I think that there's not going to be a significant amount of change in, in, uh, in the way that machine learning works until algorithm developers start to say enough is enough. And it's starting to happen, but, you know, it's, it's sort of uneven and it's a bit of a patchwork quilt. I think that the community... I mean, dare I say, we borrow a lot of techniques from, and, and tactics from the, from the labor you know, movements of the 19th and 20th century, you know, your strikes and your, your uh, you know, walkouts and your, um, you know, your, your ghost lows, you know, we can, we, can, you, we can adopt these tactics as developers in order to, to really force the institutions to, to, to change or to not implement, or maybe we shouldn't, just, we, we shouldn't implement some of these tools in the first place. A bit like how you know, many of the scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project felt that you know, they, they shouldn't have done that. You know, they, fe they felt afterwards that they, should, that they had more of a responsibility not to even develop that in, in, the, in, the, in the end in the first place. And I think we should start asking the same questions because so many of these tools... In the same way that a doctor has an ethical responsibility, because at any moment that doctor has like a responsibility to a patient, um, machine learning algorithm 
you know, developers have responsibility to millions of people because they're affecting millions of people, often for life and death, you know, consequences and decisions. Uh, and it could be something, you know, like like somebody getting credit denied, but a million times over. Um, somebody who gets, um, you know, somebody who gets arrested more often, you know, a million times over. So like these responsibilities are even height are even higher than doctors in some sense. So I think that the ethical constraints should be at least the equivalent of, if not better. Yeah, this is this is where we get into this this trouble question though, when we say that all all of us can act. A lot of people feel that technology itself is not something that they have this kind of understanding of or ability to act towards, right? Because it's because it's part of the system that they that they even though they know it kind of surrounds them, it's not um, it's not something that they fully understand. So where, where yeah, should people go to... We don't have to understand to... it. Okay. I mean, you, you, know, you don't need to have a full understanding to know that, these, that this system is having this consequence. You can see that. It's not... That's not a difficult thing. And again, it goes back to the communities that I keep seeing where they're affected by some policy that is 50% of the time impacted in some way to, uh, to, to the machine learning you know, the, the, the adoption by the government or by corporations of machine learning algorithms. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating to see this on the micro as well as the macro. Absolutely. Um, do you think that these technologies can, can be deployed? I mean, for good, I, I come back to this question of, of the way in which so many contemporary identities and kind of voices against are still being kind of amplified through these technologies in different ways. Is, is, is machine learning something, or are any of these advanced technologies ones that can be deployed in more equitable ways for more kind of emancipatory purposes? Is it a matter of who's deploying them? Yes. It's a matter of who's deploying them. It matter, it's a matter of who is who has possession of the system, who is developing it, um, and in many cases, you know, machine learning algorithm development and the research and development cycle is opaque to the you know, outside world. So there's no peer review. There's no, there's, you know, it's a black box, if you will. Like it's a computer says yes kind of thing. Um, and that, I think that these are the kinds of things that are prevent, that are in the way of making it a much more, um, you know, uh, liberatory uh, t tool or technology. But again, I want to be very clear that um, technology, and especially like machine learning, isn't, it, it, it doesn't have, it's, there's nothing, uh, there's no inherent value in it, like, like from, a, uh, an, from like a moral perspective. Um, they don't have moral values. So there's, the technology doesn't, is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. It's whatever we, whatever values we put into it makes it that. So I think that we really need to have uh, you know, a more democratized control, not just influence, but control over these systems. That's why I, I do think that decentralization, as well as being more, uh, as well as being more, more transparent, is a, a more long-term equitable like out, you know, uh, you know, uh, result. I, I think there's there's such this incredibly powerful parallel between what you're saying about this, the biases that are inherent in these technologies, but also the fact that these biases weren't really visible to us before, right? We we knew they, they were occurring. Um, that, 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 this is this goes back to the ethics part. Yeah, it's not that it's not that they weren't. 
it's not that developers were not aware of the bias in these systems. It's the fact that it was in the interest of the institutions or the, or the decision makers or the policy makers for those outputs to be the case. So they were looking for, you know, oftentimes the most dangerous thing about these tools and how they get used today is that oftentimes they're, they're designed to just rubber stamp a policy that, the, that decision makers who aren't technologists often want. So it's not that, it's not that these are bugs, it's their features from, their, from the perspective of them, not for us. But for them, often, you know, it, 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 um, it entrenches incumbency and entrenches the incumbent systems and controls. Um, so uh, this definitely wasn't an awareness thing. Um, I certainly knew about the biases in the systems that I was working with. This was, and this was eight years ago. You know, like, um, there was an awareness of it. It's just that nobody was, was doing anything about it because despite an awareness of it, the, the demands were still being placed on, on technology developers at that stage. And to keep your job, you really had to meet that, you know, which is one of the reasons why I think we need to put the responsibility on us rather than, the, than on the employers. So what would this more diversified technology system look like? Would it be the people who are working on it? Would it be the, the, the tools that are being used? Or would it be the kind of range of issues that are being brought to bear? I don't know, but I think... Everybody should be talking about this because you know I don't think that it's gonna. I don't think what's a one size fits all. Like you know, there's a solution for everything, and I, I'm not the person to like to just say that here's the prescription, here's the solution. What we need is we need to have these discussions in the first place, and that's not happening. Thank you all very much, and to ask you all with me to thank Chelsea very much indeed. For being here. Uh -huh.